If I could only have one capital that I stockpiled in my life, it'd be relationship capital. It'd be relationship capital. And here's what I mean by that. Capital capital is great. Money is fantastic. But if you lose everything and you're stripped of money, if you have relationship capital, you can still make your comeback that much quicker. Somebody will say, hey man, I'll pick you up and kick you back in the game. And somebody else will say, hey man, I'll do that website for you for free. And somebody else will say, hey, I'll build that funnel for you. And somebody else will say, hey, I know somebody who can make that product for you. Relationship capital is far more valuable than good old-fashioned capital capital. Listen up, if you are feeling like a lone wolf mired in mediocrity, that's how I felt. I felt that way four or five years ago, a lone wolf. I couldn't communicate with the people around me anymore about the ambitions and the goals that I had. In fact, I was vilified by my network for the ambitions and the goals that I had. So for me, it took finding the right community to unlock me. And what I would encourage all of you to do is join the tribe that defies the odds and goes beyond what anyone, what anyone thought is possible. Even you, you may have big, big goals, but almost every member I talk to a month later says, I thought I was thinking big. This is where you can learn how to think even bigger. Go abundance the community of men and women who have said no to living a conventional life, who are committed to conquering, protecting, impacting, and leaving a legacy with these six life-elevating, life-changing pillars that we lean into. You'll experience physical conditioning, a supportive tribe, bucket list achievements, peer partnerships, giving back, and a lifetime of wealth building. Join the tribe. Join me. This will help you step into your true self and live an epic life. Visit GoBundance.com. Fill out an application and we'll make sure we're matching you with the right community for you. Emerge up to 2 million in net worth, 2 to 10 elite, 10 plus champion. And for the, our, our ladies, let's go abundance women and those that aren't millionaire women yet. We put you right there and emerge with all the other amazing folks that are driving towards something huge. So go abundance.com. Make sure you apply today. Enjoy the rest of this episode. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today's guest, Chris Harder, is a highly regarded entrepreneur, speaker, investor, coach, and host of The Chris Harder Show. He's been featured on MSNBC, CNBC, Forbes, Business Insider, Huffington Post, and many, many more. He's committed himself to teaching ambitious people the strategies needed to discover their own limitless financial potential so that they can finally create meaningful wealth to share with the people and causes that matter most to them. We're going to get into all of that, the Frello app, and you name it. Chris Harderman, welcome. Thanks for being here. Jamie, thanks for having me, man. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. No complaints on my end. Um, likewise, likewise. Right. So life is good. You can't. Uh, in fact, I did my power nine this morning. Right. You, and you texted it. It was awesome. <laughs> you might want to start with telling what a power nine is now, by the way. You should dive in. Go for it. What is a power nine? So power nine is this nerdy little gimmicky thing that my wife and I created that we do every single morning on our walk. And if I backed up a little bit more macro picture. Her life is made up of all these nerdy little gimmicks, you know, a little mantra here and a little habit or practice there. And, and that's what I think makes it go well. But this thing in particular, when we take our dogs for a walk each morning, uh, one of us will look at the other and say, time for the power of nine. And what it is, is it's nine things. It's three things that we're grateful for. And we have to say these out loud to each other, right? So three things that we're grateful for, three things we're excited about, and three things we want to manifest that day. And actually, truth be told, we also add a 10th one, and that's who we wish well for that day. But we just always called it the power nine. And I got to tell you, Jamie, it's so weird because most mornings, one of us definitely does not feel like doing it. And I can't tell you why. It's not hard. It's very easy. 
but you're just not in a mood or you're, you're thinking about your day, you're, you're still sleeping. And that's the power of it is it gets you focused on starting out the day, looking through the right set of lenses by stopping and acknowledging out loud to your partner, or if you did it with somebody else, hey, these are the three things that I'm grateful for today. Boom, state change. These are the three things I'm excited about. Boom, state change. These are the three things that I really want to accomplish, aka manifest today. Boom, state change. And before you know it, by the time we're done with this little five-minute exercise, we feel amazing. Our moods have improved. Got a little more pep in our step. And most importantly, we know about each other's day. Like we know what we're excited about. We know about our significant other a little bit more that day, as opposed to if we're just making small talk or, or staying silent on that walk. You know, do you know who Stephen Kotler is? Do you know that name? No. He's written a bunch of books on flow. I shared my story with you about, you know, leaving a corporate job and moving and all that stuff. And, and it's funny, I'm in this place now where, you know, I'm a newer entrepreneur. I feel like I've grown a ton, but I feel plateaued or unsure about what's next, if that makes sense. Yeah. So for me, I've been looking at, okay, I remember the feeling and the momentum, sort of this flow state that I was in, and I'm trying to kind of go back and hack it. So his books are all about that. And one of the things he talks about in, I think it's the art of impossible is uh, gratitude specifically one of the one of the um, power nine elements that you have as a habit can can you know physically biochemically get you into flow state if you just do it three weeks consistently so what wow. you just said essentially is exactly the same thing that state change and as you do it consistently you can stay in a flow state or create the momentum toward a flow state. It gives all the steps to it, but I don't know if that resonates with you, but that's, no, that, it absolutely that does because it's not just that, you know, I wake up and I say a mantra out loud, the very first moment of consciousness, I wake up and I say, I'm happier, healthier, wealthier, and more fit than I was yesterday. And I roll over and I wake Lori up and I say, babe, I'm happier, healthier, wealthier, more fit than I was yesterday. And I make her say it back to me. Sometimes it's like a love hate thing. Cause she's, you know, just waking up, but I make her say it back to me. And, uh, <laughs> She does. And then I roll back over and I just say a really quick prayer of everything I'm grateful for. And it's really just inventory. I'm taking inventory. Like I'm glad that the dogs are sleeping on my feet. I'm glad I woke up in this beautiful home. I'm uh, glad that I get to choose what I want to do. There's just maybe 10, 15, 20 things I'm grateful for. And then my feet hit the floor. And that measly 60 to 90 seconds, I've already started to shape how I want to feel and how I want to see the day. You know, then we do our thing in the morning. We go on that walk. We do the power nine now I've shaped my day even more. Then I go do battle all day and we we wrap up the day with a mandatory walk so we can connect again together. And we do um, three things we're grateful, or I'm sorry, uh, three wins. We call it three wins at the end of each afternoon. And so it's all these little mini things when stacked day after day after day after day. None of them take up much time. None of them are difficult to do. Anybody can do them, but it's that compounding effect. probably not unlike investing. It's yeah. small things plus the compounding effect that really gives you big payoffs in your life. I love it. One mantra I want to dive into uh, with you is this one. It's live as though the universe conspires in your favor, literally branded on your body, right? There it is. Right there. The right there. Something like between Rumi and Paolo Coelho, I think is where that- You know, it's a butchered Rumi quote. This is funny. We're living in Santa Monica. Somewhere I heard it. And I was like, oh, that resonates with me because I used to let things just throw me off. I used to just let little things throw me into an absolute fit. And I needed something like that saying to realize, hey, 
something goes right, something goes wrong, it's happening in your favor. And truth be told, if you look at every single event in your life, even the bad ones, and you examine them looking with hindsight, right? Look back on that event and what's happened since. You can find evidence, clear-cut evidence, that that was something conspiring in your favor. It saved you from something. It helped you something. It redirected you. Who knows what? And when I had heard the quote, and I forget what the real one is by Rumi, but when I heard the quote, it just resonated with me. So I started saying to Lori, hey, live as though the universe conspires in your favor. Like every time to kind of catch myself. I'd be like, oh, you know, I'd start to throw a fit, like, oh, nope, never mind. Live as though the universe conspires in your favor. It must be happening for me. And for some reason, my version of that is what stuck with me. And Lori and I are both really bad with details, by the way. So we have a lot of butchered quotes. And woke up one day, wanted to get a tattoo, and thought, you know, I'm going to get my version of that quote, not the roomy one, because it's what resonated with me in my words. I love that. Yeah, I think it's live life as and roomies was live life as if everything is rigged in your favor. I think. Yes, you're um, right. Yep. I think the word rigged is in there. Or rig life in your favor. Whatever. It is. Yeah. Um, but I love that. I love that it's yours. I love that it's you know your your version of it, and it's and it's fully with you at all times. Um, 0809, you're a you know big time banking executive, man. We're about the same age, so this resonates with me. I didn't have the the exit you did then, but obviously I exited later. But that's taken away. Everything's changed for you. In the context of that quote, how was that something that was conspiring in your favor? So how is that a starting point? I'm assuming that it is for maybe where you are today. So it's another way of asking a backstory, I suppose. But let's go to that time and what happened and how that's conspired to, to create the life you have today. It's probably the biggest turning point in our lives. You know, 08, 09, the financial world is collapsing around us. I'm in banking. My only career experience is in banking and lending. I was actually kicked out of college after two and a half years. So it was sheer luck that I was able to talk my way into to HSBC, the world's biggest bank at the time. And I was able to perform my way into getting promotion after promotion after promotion. They actually sent me off to school, all of these accelerated uh, financial, uh, you know, quick start type degrees and all these things so that I could keep getting all the promotions. They kept sending me back to UNC Chapel Hill. And is going fantastic. I thought, you know, I'm in my 20s. I thought this is going to last forever. People tried to warn me that it wouldn't last forever, but I thought, ah, no, I've got it. I got my career. I got to figure out I knew what I'm going to do. And I was having fun. And all of a sudden, the music stopped. And when the music stopped, every industry was hit hard. But that one obviously was especially hit hard. Yeah. I spent the next year flying around to whatever random city we had branches in. And walking into that bank branch and saying, hey, guys, I'm so sorry. I'm here today to shut down this branch. I'm going to meet with each of you one-on-one, -on -one, answer any questions you have. And I'm very sorry to be doing this. And I did that to over 1,000 people over the course of the year, one by one by one. I gained 30 pounds. I was miserable. My marriage was miserable because I was a miserable. Therefore, I was a miserable partner. Like Everything was a disaster. Add to that financial stress. Because our compensation was basically one-third salary, two-thirds bonuses, and, and all the things that come with that world. So they shut off our bonuses that year, and we were living way beyond our means. Way Again, late 20s, thought it was going to last forever, wouldn't listen to anybody else. And finally, after that miserable year, they called me into headquarters and said, hey, you can have 
a demotion of a demotion of a demotion of a demotion and ride this thing out running a branch in Jersey. Or you can take your severance package. I said, give me the severance package. I remember my boss's boss looked at me, Paul Elmer, great guy. And he says, wait, don't you want to go home and talk to Lori about it? I said, nope, trust me. Lori wants me gone. I want to be gone. Something, something needs to change. So I took that massive severance package. I was, a, I was an SVP at the time, the world's largest bit. So it's a big severance package. Took that severance package and we had to apply the whole thing towards all the debt, all the dumb things that we bought. We just finished building this massive house uh, that we shouldn't have been building yet. We had to walk away from some of our rental properties because they were so far upside down. Uh, we had to short sell that house that we just built. We had to list all of our furniture and belongings that we had just gotten custom for that house on Craigslist. Well, watch as car after car pulled up in the front yard and person after person walked in through my front door and bargained for the couch and bargained for the TV and bargained for the table or whatever they wanted and walked out with our belongings, leaving me with just a little bit of cash in hand. And I'll tell you what I did with that cash in hand in a moment. The worst part of that experience, the most humiliating part of that experience was when the moving trucks pulled up. Now there was never a for sale sign in front of this big, beautiful home that we just built. And we were living in a neighborhood where it's just Lori and I, no kids yet. And everyone else's families that were older than us. So they, they already had this idea of like, wait, what do you guys do in this neighborhood? And the guy that lived across the street, his name was Greg. He sees the moving trucks pull up. He comes walking into my house. I don't really see him walk in. I'm in the mudroom on my hands and knees packing a box. And I look up and it's Greg. I said, oh, hey. He says, man, I saw the moving trucks out front. What, what's going on? I haven't didn't see a for sale sign or anything. I said, lost my job. And uh, we have to get rid of absolutely everything and, and start over again. And, uh, and mentioned to him that, you know, you didn't see a sign because I short sold the home. And he looked at me. Now, remember, I'm on my knees and he's standing above me, looking down on me. He looks down at me and he says, man, what would you go and do a thing like that for? You're going to ruin all the, the values in the neighborhood. And that was probably the lowest of low moments during that time. And I remember thinking during that time, this, this is going to be where like, I show you this, this isn't it. Add to that. When I had to come home and tell my wife, babe, we got to get rid of everything. We've been living beyond our means, only had salary, no bonuses, blah, blah, blah. She looked at me, a lot of silence at first. And then looked at me and the first words out of her mouth were, I'm never going to let this happen again. Never. And the culmination of those moments added to the fact that we were stripped of everything, including my job and my identity, my thoughts, my beliefs, everything. That gave us the chance to choose again because we had nowhere to go but up. We had no more obligations. That gave us the chance to, to be a blank chalkboard and figure out how do we want to show up this time? What do we want to do this time? How do we want to add value this time? What kind of life do we actually want to build this time instead of just maximizing the life where we're already cruising down the freeway so quickly, we can't even get on an off-ramp if we wanted to. Mm. So tying that to your question, 
live as though the universe conspires in your, your favor. That moment where we got to choose again, that's where we got to choose entrepreneurship. That's where Lori got to choose to step into her fitness career that made her famous and got 11 covers of magazines, won all the titles. That's where we built supplement business. And that's where I got into and sold my share of a mortgage bank to my partners. That's where we started the entrepreneurial coaching um, world. That's where we started the podcast. Like all of those things were born out of that giant timeout that was handed to us. Now, we would have never chosen that route. We would have never chosen that timeout. We would have never chosen those horrible feelings and embarrassment and, and bad, you know, couple of years for ourselves. But boy, I wouldn't replace them. So I look back, there's some of the best moments of our life. And to anyone who's going through something like that right now, I'm not expecting that you look at it right now and say, hey, this is the best moment of my life. Trust me, I know what it feels like. But I can darn your promise, you're going to look back and say, that was one of the best moments of my life. Because you get to choose again. That's amazing. The one word you used in there uh, that I want to dive into a little bit more is identity. So I think I've heard you say in that time, especially your, your, your identity was wrapped up in maybe being a provider, right? Yeah. I bring home the bacon, so on and so forth. And now, obviously, you just mentioned how you had to choose essentially a new identity, right? You chose to identify as entrepreneurs and so on. How did you let go of that identity? And maybe more to the point, how much was the relationship, Lori, a part of that? You mentioned she said, we'll never let this happen again. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the shift of identity in those in that moment. I know, I know, you know, if we look at it in macro terms, it's like it was, and then later I decided that it that it is now this. But in the middle, because I think a lot of people are going to be going through this now in the next six months, next year. Yep. So talk about that process of identity shift for you, the role of Lori in that, your role, how you overcame it, so on and so forth. Jamie, I love the way you asked this question. It's the first time ever that somebody's asked the question in this context. People usually say, hey, I, I heard you talk about the identity shift, um, but they mean like my identity as an SVP, how many people did I run? What was my next promotion? They always wanna talk about that identity, sure. my professional identity that I stripped of. No one's ever asked me yet, man, how do you shift your identity as, you know, what was your role at home? As a man almost, right? As a man. Yeah. This was one of the hardest things in my life. Um, let me paint the picture one more time. I gained 30 pounds, so I wasn't feeling very sexy. Um, lost my job that I, I would hang my pride and my hat on. Here's my title. Here's what I'm making. Here's my next promotion. Lost my swagger. Lost my confidence. Really lost myself. And we we're living in uptown Minneapolis when we hit the reset button, tiny little 900 square foot studio condo. And it was right by these chain of lakes. Anyone who lives in the area, they know where they are. Lake Calhoun, Lake Harriet, Lake of the Isles. We're walking around Lake Calhoun, probably six months into this time. And Lori was starting to catch fire, got a job as a trainer, got her certification. We're starting to talk about what are your dreams, babe? She wanted to start a gym. All these things that came to fruition, starting to get momentum, starting to provide. And she never had the chance to do those things in the past, by the way. So this was a new identity for her because 
I would get a new promotion every six months or a year and would pick her up and move her. So she never had a chance to get a career anywhere. So she is starting to build this rocket ship. I feel like I am just sludging around in quicksand with no motivation to change that anytime soon. I mean, I have really lost my swagger. I remember walking around that lake, bringing that up and saying that to her. I remember saying, babe, I'm so grateful that at least you're excited about something and at least you're pursuing something. Because right now I'm just going through the motions and I don't, I don't even know how I'm ever going to get excited about doing something. And part of that was I was burnt out. Sure. To, to climb that quickly um, at, a, at a bank that big during that time, it was a grind. So it was a combination of being burnt out plus losing my identity. So walking around that lake, I said, babe, I'm so grateful that you're excited about something. I have nothing to latch on to right now. I don't know what I want to do. I don't know who I'm going to be. And that was like the first moment we spoke about this identity shift internally. The first time that we talked about, hey, it's okay. I got this for a while, she said. And without her taking the reins and kind of setting the pace for us again, who knows how long it would have taken for us to, to choose to get on this other rocket ship that we ended up building. It might have never even come to fruition. How do you, I want to... I wanted to get in a relationship at one point, but I, I just want to tag on to this for a moment here, because I think what's what's really, really cool about that story is this dynamic shift. You know, it's sort of uh, two people running in parallel. You know, you're doing this. She's over here. And then you hit your, you know, whatever the, the rocket runs out of fuel and then yeah. she takes off and, and brings you with her. And you two, even more importantly, allow for that other person to live in their power and, and, uh, and trail, if you will, when you need to, you know, like you kind of pull each other, at least that's my impression from doing the research and everything. And I feel very fortunate myself. My wife has been extremely supportive in all the crazy things that I want to do and so on and so forth. I hope I'm equally supportive. I feel like I am. We'll see if she says that, but, but I, I kind of like what I was saying before about, Hey, I went through this period of time where I I've gotten flow and I'm now going back and trying to sort of recreate it. This podcast is going to be listened to mostly by high-performing men, thousands and thousands of high-performing men. That's the avatar of this podcast. A lot of them that I talk to say, I want to accept my wife, right? Mm -hmm. My wife feels this way or doesn't believe in this or thinks I'm, I'm crazy or whatever it might be. So I, I don't know if we're speaking to somebody maybe at the beginning of a courtship and going back to that time when you, when you were, you and Lori, I mean, you've been married 20 plus years at this point, but when you and Lori got together, I'm sure it wasn't like, wow, I know that when I fizzle out, she's going to be there and so on. And so on. That wasn't the intention at the no. beginning, but can you, can you identify characteristics or traits or aspects of your, of your marriage from the beginning, maybe through now that you could say, wow, now that I see from, you know, now looking back. What are those things that that maybe men specifically could look for in a partner or women, I guess, but I don't know. I hope that question makes sense. Yeah, one of my favorite topics. So let's go way back to dating. The thing that we had in common right away, because we were very opposites, very opposites uh, in many ways. But the things we had in common were real core values. We were both dreamers. And so we found that when we'd have conversations, we loved dreaming about the future. What could we build? What could we create? What could it be like? We're both dream. So that's a Sagittarius in both of us. We both loved the gym. So we would just spend hours lifting and hours 
you know, going for walks and, and doing cardio and, and doing those things. And it was some of those core traits that we had in common that created a good foundation, despite all the other areas where we were, we liked opposite types of music. Um, we came from different financial backgrounds. We were in different places financially at that moment. Um, we had different beliefs around, um, you know, she came from a, a different type of religion than I did. Like we had a lot of opposite things when we met, but it was those few core things that we knew that we could build on and that we thoroughly enjoyed um, spending time together. That is obviously what led to us getting married. Now, when we were married, those things amplified. We dreamt even bigger together. She supported me while I was in my season, uh, you know, climbing through the ranks at the bank. Then when I got kicked to the curb, I supported her when she was in her season, while she was climbing into this fitness persona that she became. And 18 years married, 21 years together, I can look back and say, we've had very clear seasons. And we talk about what season we're in. We acknowledge what season we're in. We tell each other, hey, I'm on right now. I need your support. Or you're on right now. I'm here to support you. And then sometimes in life, you're both in a season of sprinting at the same time. So then you got to find other ways to support each other, other ways to make sure you stay connected. And one of the best things that we've ever made as a policy in our relationship is that we'll always be willing to try anything on for size. And what I mean by that is no different than like going shopping and saying, hey, does this shirt fit me? Do I like how it looks on me or not? If I bring her an idea or I want to sh shift careers or I want to move somewhere, or if she wants to bring me, you know, she wants to become this new person, whatever it might be. We don't reject it. We don't say, oh, that's dumb. Oh, come on. We already have it good. We have an agreement that we will always try it on for size. All right. You don't have to, you don't have to like it, but you at least have to try it on for size and give it a fair shot. And Jamie, what I think that does is it makes it so that the other person's not afraid to talk about this new season that they're going into. I think it makes it so that the other person's not afraid to, to bring up something that might feel like a, a wild idea. We've got dear friends named Kim and Rob Murgatroy. They play something that they call stupid idea time. That basically the time where, hey, most of what I throw on the table here is going to be really stupid. But that's my permission to throw anything on the table. And so we've adopted that from them. We play stupid idea time. All of these things, these ways of coexisting, is why she's been able to build a rocket ship and, and go to the moon. And then all of a sudden I wanted to build a different one and go to the moon. And she wanted to build a different one and go to the moon. Because we've never said, oh, that's a dumb idea. We've never said, oh, I don't want to do that. We've learned that some of the things that we would have rejected at first actually ended up being the best fit in the world for us. And so I think if you can find some core values, know that you guys dream about the same things for your future. All the other things where you're opposites, those fall into place. Trust me. Matter of fact, some of those are the best things. You learn new things that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. But you got to have that policy of being willing to try anything on to see if it fits. That's a great answer. And the, the, what jumps up for me uh, from a question standpoint is it, with a little context, 
when you've been married 20 years, I'm, I'm with my wife 14, and I've said this before, and maybe it's an overly violent way of saying it, but you grow as people individually, and then you're still together, right? So I think that the version of whatever marriage you had has to die. You have to kill it yeah. in order for the new version of that marriage to be born. You said it in a different, much more eloquent way, <laughs> much more eloquent way than that. But uh, the question really is, okay, I, I love what you said. It's finding common ground. It's allowing for, it's recognizing the seasons that you're in. But for those couples that might be listening that haven't haven't uh, that maybe have grown apart but are still together, they haven't had these these agreements along the way and they're 10, 15, 20 years into a relationship. How do is there a way that they could start to bridge the gap and do the well, I forget what the friend your friends did, what you called it. Stupid uh, idea uh, time. Stupid idea time or whatever. Like So is there any hacks, advice? thoughts on, okay, yes, great. I love it. But my wife is dug in or my husband is dug in. How, Chris, do we after 12 years or 15 years of marriage, kids now in our life, and and we're kind of over here. How do I bring us back together so that we're aligned like what you're describing? I'm the furthest thing in the world from a marriage coach or relationship coach (laughs) or anything like that. But But you are passionate about this topic, man. This is like, you know, I could tell you just a couple of things that I really like that, that work for us. Sure. Um, going back to this idea of making sure your futures are aligned. I would venture to say most people who are listening right now that say, my wife and I are so far apart. I don't even know how we woke up here. I would venture to say that you guys haven't sat down and daydreamed in ages about what you want to build together, what the future could look like. What kind of amazing, big, audacious life could you build together? I'd be willing to bet a significant amount of money that you haven't done that in ages if you woke up and you feel like you are massively apart. Because it's the the common dream that is the destination that even if you take different routes to get there, you guys know you're going to the same place. So I would say start with sitting down and saying, babe, listen, I know that things don't feel well. I know that we feel light years apart. Let's just call call it what it is. Let's just acknowledge that it's there. But instead of trying to fix any of that right now, could we ever just spend the evening dreaming about what we thought the future was going to be? What we think it could be? Like we used to back when we liked each other. That might be that common destination that can get you pointed in the same direction again. Now, listen, one person might be over here and it, you know, headed this way. And one person might be over here headed this way. But if you have a common destination way down the road, at least you can start to write the course and head towards the same place. I think the second thing is you have to just look internally and ask yourself, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And this is one of the toughest things I think for men to do probably men and women, but I can only speak from my perspective. Men have ego. They want to be right. They're competitive. But your quest for being right, your quest for, I told you so, your quest for, see, I knew it was going to work out this way. I tried to warn you. That's probably costing you your happiness as an individual and as a couple. And I'd rather be happy than right all day long. And if you do it correctly, you get to be both many times. But if you make me choose, I'd rather be happy than than right all day long. 
And I think it's back to, to Rob and Kim again. It's funny that they keep coming up. When they fight, they have a great little hack. You know, they'll be passionate. They're fighting. They, they're disagreeing. And one will stop the other and they'll say, okay, scale of one to 10. How much does this actually mean to you? And one will say an eight. And the other will, and the other will say, I'm a nine. And they have an agreement that whichever one has the higher number, the other one will give in in an effort to be happy instead of trying to win the fight and be right. And so it's just fun little hacks like that that you pick up along the way that end up being good tools that anybody can borrow. But Jamie, I really think it just comes down to those two things. I'd rather be happy than right all the time. And you got to keep that common destination. You got to be dreamers together. Or, of course, you guys aren't going to head in the same direction. I'm using that. I like that. The number system. That's a really good idea. It works good because it interrupts the fight, you know, and, yeah. and you yeah. can't argue with a, a quantitative scale. So I was putting myself in that situation. Like what I always go with the higher number, but I'm like, no, I could see myself like, ah, I'm really just a six. So whatever. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and yep. Move on, so that's what you're going to learn about yourself. You're like, wait, I'm sitting here fighting for this thing and ruining our whole day for something that's a six to me, you yeah. know? Yeah. That's a great point. Um, just a couple of last points on the, on the relationship side. And then I want to get back into a couple of the things from, uh, from like what your mission is and so on. But, um, you mentioned, we talked about your identity as a provider before. And if I missed it, I apologize. You know, as a host, sometimes you're thinking and and, Mm -hmm. and listening at the same time. Is there a word or a phrase that you would use today as your identity that you identify as? A teammate, a running partner. We, Lori and I together, we are one team focused on a massive mission. That mission to us is to set up not just ourselves, not just our immediate family, but generations to come to set them up so that they are well-equipped for however the world's going to turn out. I think nobody can argue with the fact that the world is, is changing dynamically. And it's going to take more and more and more money to be able to survive and be able to do the things that you want to do to to lead a happy and a healthy life and to be able to choose what careers you want to be in in order to make the impact that you actually want to make in the world instead of just taking a job because they have to. We want to set everybody in our lineage up for that. We feel that responsibility so that everybody is equipped for whatever may come. That mission together, that fuels us. That's exciting. That's that's a moonshot, and we're signed up for it. We're, we're building the, the fleet of rocket ships to get us there. So the identity now, you know, back then it was the old school one. I'm the provider. You stay home. We move when I get a promotion. Don't worry, babe. I got you. Well, we learned that wasn't true. Now it's like, what could we be together? How freaking powerful can we be? If you use your skills and I use mine and we lift each other up. Again, on the relationship part, I know from a kid perspective, and you mm-hmm. tell me if you don't want to go here and that's completely understandable, but you and Happy to go anywhere. I'm sorry? Happy to go anywhere. So you and Lori, I know have tried and still are trying, I think, yep. to have kids. Um, and it hasn't, it hasn't quite happened. And the impression I got was that Lori has maybe had some, I don't want to use the word, but you can, you can correct it. Maybe insecurity, concern, um, whatever for her, it's been, it's been a very taxing and trying endeavor, um, uh, to manifest something 
when she's manifested everything else right in her life, then this isn't happening. So back to this point with identity, how is that identity, if at all, maybe it hasn't been, been challenged in you watching her or being with her going through what she's going through? Yeah, it hasn't been challenged because we're attached to having a family, no matter how we have to get there. That's almost back to what I was talking about earlier. Like, hey, we just know what the destination is. We might go left to get there. We might go right to get there. Who knows how we get there, but we're aligned on the destination. That could be adopting. That could be using other people's embryos. That could be a number of different ways to get there if we can't manage to to make kids ourselves. And we've been making a valiant effort. I've watched her just be a trooper, you know, at the same time as growing her company, which is a startup and all these other things, taking two shots a day and going through all those hormones. I mean, it's brutal what women have to go through when they're trying to apply science as, as an assist. And I've watched her just be a champ, kick and tail and, and pushing through it anyways with a great attitude. And so our, our journey, this mission hasn't changed based on the left turns and the U-turns and, and the wrong turns that, that we've had to take when it comes to creating a family, because we're doing it for the whole family. I've got a brother and, and he'll have kids one day. And I've got a brother-in-law, Lori's brother, and he has five kids uh, between his past marriage and, and his new family. And they're going to have kids. And, and like, we've got our parents that we take uh, care of. We have no shortage of family that drives us to set up many generations. And so when I say many generations, I don't just mean our offspring and maybe kids that they'll have. I mean, we feel a grave responsibility to take care of Taylor and his kids and grave responsibility to make sure Nick and Jackie and their family will be set up and and anybody else who who comes into the picture. What's clear in in what you talk about is a very mission-focused approach. Even before when we were talking about your identity, you gave a couple of words, but then you took that into mission, I felt at least, which was it's going to take more money to, to provide for life. So we're going to not only do that for ourselves, but for all of our lineage, all of our family, right? Like there's a mission in what you do, whether it's serving those that you love or serving those that are, are, uh, are trying to, uh, as you put it, uh, create meaningful wealth to share with the people that and, and causes that mean something to them. So the mission makes sense. And, and, and kind of that being a given, you got to have a clear and, and discernible mission for you to achieve something. But I'm interested in the strategies. So you talk about strategies to discover limitless financial potential. You've coached a lot of people. You've got, you know, the, the roundtable strategy. I mean, you do a whole bunch of stuff in this regard. Is there a common thread that you see as, as and it could be base level strategies for the people that you work with or what you see just generally as you work with people here, uh, you know, here and there. Are there some core strategies that you're surprised that most people aren't taking advantage, no matter how smart or dumb or whatever, but are there some core things that you see trends strategically that people could take advantage of in order to create this limitless financial potential? Yeah, you've got to have a lot of irons in the fire. You can't just take one path to get there. And I almost look at them as as different risk tolerances. So using ourselves as an example, the money that we put every month into our simple Vanguard funds, that is like our worst case scenario backup plan. That is very easy to calculate, give or take, where that's going to end up short of a catastrophic event in the collapse of, of, of a country. Yeah. So that's that's the baseline. 
we can look to the future and say, if we keep adding this much and we have an average of 10.87% compounding interest, then we know we're gonna end up here worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. So that becomes the foundation. Then there's the next layer of risk. For us, that is individual stocks and individual companies that we invest in. Those are starting to, to go for some of the moonshots. Those are obviously riskier. Then we've got that next level, that next iron in a fire. That's our individual companies that we're building for exit. And those are the ones that no one's guaranteed an exit. No matter how good your idea is, no matter how good of an entrepreneur, no one's guaranteed an exit. So that also qualifies as a moonshot, but nevertheless, another iron in the fire. And then we've got all the other offshoots that we do that when I say moonshot, that's probably an understatement. We've dumped a ton into crypto and Web3 investments. Most will fail, some will hit. Um, I love investments. Once you've taken care of the basics, right? The, the common sense stuff. I just thoroughly enjoy investments where when one out of 10 hits, that multiple is so big that it makes up for all the other dumb ones that you made. And it's having all those diverse irons in the fire that I think is the plan that'll get you to where you want to go. You can't, unless you have a really big income, you cannot save and invest your way to incredible wealth. You can save and invest your way to a nice nest egg to retire on, but not legacy wealth. Then how do you make up for that? You simply have to be involved in some other investments that have the shot of dramatically increasing your income and or dramatically increasing your payoffs. And I think when you combine both of those methodologies, then you know where you're going to land worst case scenario. And you've got all of the other things that could be your absolute home runs. I like the concept of irons in the fire. I wasn't expecting you to go there with that. So you're, you're, you just gave a really nice model of, you know, um, your time and energy and money and how to kind of do it in such a way that you build foundation and then kind of go up from there. What I was thinking with irons in the fire, and I want to get your thoughts on this is if you're trying to build that large income, you know, you want to build a passive income, have, you know, good active income coming in that you could then spill over into your passive endeavors, whether it's like you said, a conservative Vanguard account, all the way up through an angel investment. But are you, do you see the same approach or do you use the same approach when it comes to making money, the, the physical act, the time spent, the energy spent? Are you multiple irons in the fire? Are you focused in on one thing? I mean, it feels like like the, the world out there says, you know, focus one thing and don't, don't deviate, just stay narrow on that. Don't go outside of it. But I'm hearing maybe that you're saying, you know what, I think you got to kind of maybe push a few different buttons down the road or a few different cars down the road here for you to build, you know, I call it like vertical income in order yeah. to build passive income. I'm so glad that you asked about this. First of all, I've, be, I've become obsessed lately with investment income. You know, we've been investing in ATM tranches and clean carbon machines and everything else where you get the tax write-off and the mailbox money for the next seven years or whatever it is at the yeah. same time. But first you have to build earned income to be able to start investing, planting those seeds into creating investment income. The best way to create earned income where you're trading your time or your expertise for, for money is to start focusing on just one thing 
and building that until it is just printing money for you and it feels very effortless to keep going. Once you have that momentum, then reinvest the resources, the lessons, the income, the connections, the network from that first income source that you built into building a second one. Mm. Now that second one, maybe you're leaving 20% of your effort here and you're putting 80% of your effort into getting that rocket ship off, off the ground and you're focused on it, but it's easier this time because borrowing from the first one, you've got resources. You've got some money to apply to the second one. You've got some new relationships to apply to the second one. You might have customers that apply to the second one. So you build that second vertical. And not until that thing is full of momentum on a rocket ship, feels pretty effortless at this point. You've got it dialed in. You've got the team to support it. Now, go build a third one. You build those three, maybe some people might prefer, prefer four, I don't care how many you build. What I care is this. I want you to build your life around your income so that if any one of your income sources went away today, you would not have to change your lifestyle tomorrow. You wouldn't have to sell the homes. You wouldn't have to move. You wouldn't have to get rid of the cars. You wouldn't have to do any of that. You'd be just fine. You might be angry. You might be disappointed. You might slow down some of your investing but you wouldn't have to change your lifestyle in any meaningful way. Now that can be hard for some people to swallow, especially if there's only one breadwinner. And it's okay if you're not there today, but now someone has informed you, hey, this is the goal. This is the, the foolproof way to build your income sources. Make sure that when you build multiple income sources and when you're building your budget, when you're building your life, you're building it so that if any one of those, even your biggest one went away today, you don't have to change your lifestyle tomorrow. And that was a personal lesson that we pulled out of our debacle when we had to start over in 2008, 2009. Yeah, yeah. no, I love that. Is that I'm just curious, it's so kind of an odd question, but uh, is there a timeline that you see, maybe it's an average, you start one stream of income, say you're 44 years old or 50 years old and you're you're starting down this path. Is it like, invest two years, five years, one year, three years, six months, you know, should there be, I don't know, milestone timelines that people should consider as to whether or not this is a stream that's going to work or not. Yeah. Um, I'm just kind of curious if you have any thoughts on that. I can't apply a timeline to it because I have seen such diverse talents out there. I've yeah. seen people where it takes them a couple of years because maybe it's the income type of stream that they chose. I've seen people where it takes them a couple of months or like, whoa, never mind, that thing's on autopilot, on to the next thing. So it really is, what income streams are you choosing? How talented are you? How good are you at building teams? But if you're looking for a rule of thumb, that rule of thumb is don't move on to this next one until that first one has so much momentum and support in the form of the right team behind it that you can afford to divert 80% of your time and energy and effort from that first one into the second one without that first one slowing down at all. Makes That's sense. the rule of thumb. Makes sense. You, uh, one of the assets that I think you've done a great job leveraging, and I'm learning from you as I've discovered you through my Gaella and everything, is the asset class of an audience. And I heard you talk about this from a standpoint of, hey, there's certain, and I've experienced this on a much smaller scale than you have at this point, but there's certain people 
that are going to buy from you no matter what you do. You could you could release the dumbest thing ever and they're just going to buy it, right? Certain people that are never going to buy from you, no matter how good an offering, no matter how good a price or whatever, they're just they're not going to buy from you. And then there's this middle and shifting that middle toward, you know, the buy side is mm-hmm. essentially a key to success. How do you do that? How, what, what are some things that you see uh, or that you've done or that you've learned around shifting that middle over to the buy side? Taking a macro look at it, if you have a large audience that you have served and served and served over a long period of time consistently, you build up so much reciprocity that not all of them, but many of them are going to be excited about whatever next venture you decide to do. Even if it's a totally unrelated venture. My wife went from fitness to self-development. Now, those two are pretty related. So you can understand why a lot of people went from fitness over to self-development. But then she went from self-development to saying, you know what? I want to start a beverage company out of thin air. And I want to get female investors only. So women start having this talk about investing because I hear my husband talk about investing with his buddies all the time, but none of my friends are talking about this. And she goes out and she raises $2 million from 54 female-only investors. And it took her like a year of grinding out those conversations when she could have had it from our guy friends in a matter of seconds. I raised over $2 million in the first two weeks for Frello. But no, the mission, bringing her audience along, meant something to her. Finding out, hey, who wants to be a, a physical part of this new company? Meant something to her. Now, that transition from self-development to all of a sudden we're building a beverage company over here, that's a really weird left turn. But nonetheless, tons of her audience came as supporter. Tons of her audience have opted in for the the big launch. Tons of her audience showed up and said, hey, wait, I want to be an investor. So whenever you can serve and serve and serve consistently to as big of an audience as possible, that in itself is a very valuable asset class. Here's a very small example. A lot of times, Lori and I will affiliate for one of our friends' programs that um, people won't even realize we're really affiliating for. We'll have them on the podcast. We'll talk about their exciting product or program or whatever it is that they have. We'll tell people where to find it. We'll back that up with some emails about it, maybe a text or two to our text list. And because we have an audience where we've never steered them wrong, they consume and they consume big. And we'll make hundreds of thousands of dollars each time that we affiliate for somebody else by promoting something that they do and getting a share of it. That doesn't happen. If you don't serve your audience consistently and never let them down, the minute you sell a crappy widget, the minute you sell something out of desperation, the minute that you do something for the money and and not for the fact that you actually love and believe in this thing, you're going to burn a lot of that capital down, unfortunately. So protect that asset class. Protect that capital, protect that audience with everything you got, continue to serve them. Jamie, do you know how many times I'm recording a podcast in my car, in between meetings, in a parking lot, into my phone? Because 
I know that people are expecting that money Monday, or I know that people are expecting that Wednesday business episode or that Thursday, he said, she said, I don't feel like doing it in that moment. I'm in a panic. I'm in between meetings. It's not ideal circumstances in a parking lot in a car into my phone. But you can't let them down, man. You got to show up consistently to that asset class. And in return, that asset class will never let you down no matter what crazy direction you want to take them. I think people underestimate that as, and I love using the phrase, and I'm glad you edified it really, the asset class of an audience, right? Because I think people think, I, I hear this a lot, you know, I got, I got, you know, 10 grand, where should I invest in? And I think people are looking for the crypto tip, stock tip, yeah. piece of real estate, whatever, those hard assets, if you will. But yeah, investing it in yourself in such a way that it could serve others and build an audience. I mean, there's tactics, of course, that you have to, you have to understand. I'm learning those day by day, but it's such an incredible, to your point, not to, not to um, be predatory <laughs> with an audience, but to serve an audience. And as you mentioned, kind of that jab, jab, right hook mentality, right? You give and give and give and give and give. And at some point, you know, when you say, hey, I've, I've got this offering, it seems to serve what all of you are telling me you need, you'll see the, the, you know, the value return at that point. So I think it's a great, great point that you made. 95.5 is what I would say to that. Lori and I, yeah. Lori and I, Lori and I kind of say, hey, 95% of what we put out there has to be of high service and free and accessible. 5% ask for something in return, make a sale, sell a product that means something to you. If you stick to 95.5, then overwhelmingly your audience is never going to bat an eye when you finally have an ask of them. I like that. So out of a hundred podcast episodes, for instance, 95 of them are going to just be pure value add. And in five of them, yeah, you've got something that, you know, you think will be a value that people can pay for. That's a great, great ratio. I appreciate you saying that. Um, one other concept that I thought was really interesting, I liked it. I don't know if you coined it or Lori coined the phrase, but irresponsible demonstrations of abundance. I've heard both of you talk about this concept when it comes to when you were busted in 0809, yeah. all the way up through... Um, you know, on a higher level, yeah, you're making good money, but there's always still, you know, an irresponsible, an, an irresponsible demonstration of abundance. Can you explain what that is first, and then how yeah. it can be applied, or how you've applied it? Yeah, there's this there's this slippery slope where people say, "Hey, if you want to change your money mindset, hey, if you want to be more abundant, then then go put yourself around abundant situations and abundant people and abundant places and all that." And there's truth to that statement, but then there's going too far and being irresponsible with trying to attract abundance. So what might this look like? Let's say it is, you want to be inspired by great surroundings. And so you go to an incredible resort where, you know, wealthy people hang out. It might mean going there for drinks and dinner and buying a day pass at the pool but not spending the 2,500 bucks on a, a night on a room there. That's a responsible way to plug into that abundance, but not overdo it. Let's take it on a you know, bigger picture. It might mean joining a mastermind or a coaching group or something along those lines where you know there's bigger thinkers, you know there's better ideas, but not joining one where it's such a big investment that it now prohibits you from being able to afford to execute any of the ideas that you get. So there's the sweet spot where when you're trying to create abundance by being more abundant, you got to live in that sweet spot and not take it too far 
where you're literally burning the very seeds that you should be planting in order to turn into a crop down the road. And I think it's figuring out where that sweet spot is in each of your decisions. I'm not a believer in living the way Dave Ramsey preaches. And I love him, by the way. Freaking love that guy. I love his show. I love most of his principles, the whole nine yards. Yeah. But the beans and rice thing, the cutting back and cutting back and cutting back thing, before you know it, you've built a habit of cutting back and there's nothing left to cut back. Wow. Lori and I are the opposite. We have the mentality of get bigger than the problem. Got a challenge? Mathematically figure out how to get bigger than it. Got a new challenge? Mathematically figure out how to get bigger than that one. When you have a growth habit versus a habit of cutting back, you get two very different results when you wake up three years, five years, 10 years down the road. Very different ways of thinking. And the same thing goes for when you're trying to live an abundant lifestyle. You don't want to cut back to this beans and rice life because then you're like, why am I working hard? This feels like garbage. There's no payoff. And you're hanging around beans and rice type of thinkers. You want to be able to live in that sweet spot where you're being challenged, live in that sweet spot where you're being inspired, live in that sweet spot where you have aspirational things around you that can, you can see, feel, touch, and smell, but not so far that you're spending next year's money that was supposed to be planted as seeds for a crop five years from now. One of the things that uh, I'm kind of curious what you got from this, I think when you were going through what you were going through, Landmark popped up. So yeah. this was 600 bucks, right? So to your point, I, I've heard you talk about this. It's not that you have to go for the $2,500 a night or whatever, right? It's, it could be a $600 stretch, which at the time was a stretch. It was right? a stretch for us. Two tickets, 600 bucks, 1200 bucks. I was like, oh, wow, it's a lot of money. What, what did you take from, I did Landmark. I'm just kind of curious. What did you take from Landmark? Because well, I think that feels like it was foundational in your journey. Man, you want to talk about an identity shift. A friend of mine recommended we should go to it. I told Lori about it. I bet you deep down, I must've wanted to go, but outwardly, I sure as heck didn't want to go. What year was this? Do you remember? 2000 and probably nine or 10 while we're going through the muck of everything. Got it. Thank you. It is in Minneapolis. Okay. And um, so Lori says, oh, this looks amazing. Yeah, let's go to this. We need to go to this. Like you said, at the time, it was 600 bucks a ticket, 1200 bucks for the two of us. We're starting over financially from way below zero. So it might as well have been $6 million. And I reluctantly bought the tickets and I walked into that room reluctantly. And on that first day, you've been to it. So, you know, it's like everyone's getting up there and they're telling their stories and they're crying and they're, they're bearing their souls. And I remember thinking, oh, you're a mess. I wouldn't want to be like you. And oh, wow, you're a real shit show. I'd be like you. And, oh my God, I'm glad I don't have your life. And I was sitting there just so judgmental. I had such a, a judgmental identity back then. And we can unpack that later if you want. But I went from walking into the room and spending the first day with that attitude to the second and third day, just transforming, learning that there's no meaning to anything other than the meaning you apply to it. That was really freeing for me. Learning about stories and rackets that we run on ourselves. Really learning that, hey, at any given time, you get to change your story and, and decide what outcome that you want. And these things were my first taste of self-development. So these were really powerful for me. 
pretty basic concepts. But for me, heck, this was, this was radical thinking. And it was that transformation over the course of that weekend, I think that really kicked me back into the game and, and really changed the, the trajectory for us. I love that. The meaning part. So I did mine in COVID. So it was, and I went to a hotel and did it on Zoom. Couldn't even. Oh, wow. It was different. But three days, same thing. It's 16, 18 hour days or whatever, sitting in front of my laptop in in my hotel room and interacting, of course. But uh, the the concept and the way I phrase it is um, that nothing in life has inherent meaning. Yeah. That's so empowering to me. Other than the meaning that you apply to it. Isn't that amazing? Like when someone really unpacks that and plays that movie to the end, that can be one of the most freeing concepts anybody can ever learn. It's huge. Like I I say this to people, it's like, you know, okay, uh, somebody's, we generally accept meaning as a society, right? Somebody's mother passes away. That's generally perceived as sad. We all would agree, oh, it's sad. But if somebody was abused by that woman, that meaning of that lady's death, of this mother's death, is very different for that person, more than likely. And you wouldn't fault them for that. But the idea that, that yeah, I mean, nothing, like kids don't have any meaning. I don't have any meaning inherently, right? That I get to define the meaning of the relationship with my kids, the meaning of this interaction that we're having, the meaning of where I live, whatever. God, that that was so like, like it was like shackles came off. It was crazy. And, and again, the concept itself, if you just describe it that way, almost sounds sad like there's no meaning to anything no not not other than what at first it does rock you a little bit at first you want to push back and say what are you talking about this certainly means that and that certainly means that but if you allow yourself to get past it it's actually quite incredible amazing yeah i love that so i just wanted to get your your take on uh on that so all right let's uh i want to just because tribe of millionaires i want to ask this question and we'll talk about then we'll talk about frello um community now it's very clear dotted in your in your um story how much community or connection or networking has played a role tribe of millionaires right go abundance is our community that's how i met mike you know where we we get together we're men who you know are, are are driving forward trying to be the best version of ourselves across all these different principles and we have our women's group as well um can you articulate i'm just i mean just listening to you i'm like i'm just curious how you would talk about it community, networks, uh, other people in your life. Can you articulate how that has shown up for you or how you advise people on joining that mastermind or whatever it might be? I'd just love to hear your take on it. Jamie, it's everything. I will tell you what, if if I had, could only have one capital that I stockpiled in my life, it'd be relationship capital. Yeah, It'd be relationship capital. And here's what I mean by that. Capital, capital is great. Money is fantastic. But if you lose everything and you're stripped of money, if you have relationship capital, you can still make your comeback that much quicker. Somebody will say, hey, man, I'll pick you up and kick you back in the game. And somebody else will say, hey, man, I'll do that website for you for free. And somebody else says, hey, I'll build that funnel for you. And somebody else will say, hey, I know somebody who can make that product for you. Relationship capital is far more valuable than good old-fashioned capital capital. The best case scenario is if you have both. And... You need to intentionally, the same way you got to intentionally invest and build up your your true monetary capital, you need to intentionally wake up every day and work on building, stacking that relationship capital. I wake up and I text a few people every morning while I'm having my coffee. Hey, man, thinking of you today. Let me know if I can ever help you with anything. Hey, saw this funny thing, thought of you today. You can't just go on autopilot and then hope that people are there for you when you need them. I show up when it's inconvenient sometimes 
to help somebody with their event. I show up when maybe I had other plans to help kick somebody back in the game or help them brainstorm when they need to make a pivot. It's all of these seemingly small deposits that will add up over time and allow you to build a community where the law of reciprocity is tilted in your favor when you finally need it one day. Add to that the fact that you can't just do that to the, the community you have right now. It needs to be ever growing. I'm the biggest fan in the world of seeking out new people with new ideas and new ways of being that challenge where I'm at today. Because that's where all the breakthrough ideas come from. That's where all the, the people that might save you from making a mistake come from. I can't tell you the number of, of individuals that have saved me from mistakes because they've been further down the road and have already been there, done that. Eh, don't make that investment. Here's how it turned out for me once. Eh, I wouldn't do that with your company. Let me tell you a story where that backfired on somebody. That doesn't happen if I don't constantly seek to grow my community to people who have already done more than me. Hmm. Sometimes that's going to an event where they're at. Sometimes that's joining a mastermind where they're at. Sometimes that's creating what you wish existed and sending out those really scary invites, being afraid that no one's going to come. You know, when I moved from <laughs> Minneapolis to L.A., I really was starting to get my swagger back and I like wanted to build something big. And I, I was kind of a big fish in a small pond for a moment in the Midwest. And I moved to L.A. and, you know, L.A., you just get swallowed right up. Like, wait, where do I fit in in this city of 16 million people in the metro area and all the biggest doers in the world are either there or in New York, right? So I'm like, how do I build a community? I said, I'm going to invite people that I want to meet to a dinner that I will pay for at a really cool place. And I will just facilitate a good evening. Now, I was scared as heck to do this, Jim. I didn't. Is anyone going to show up? They don't know who I am. It's an invitation of a friend of a friend. But sure enough, picked a restaurant and invited the people. And I think there was probably 20 people there that first night. Heck, you offer people free meal and free drinks. And, you know, they're, they're, they're willing to come out and show up. But it was more than that. And then I took it a step further. I said, hey, everybody doing this as an experiment, you know, lived here for about, I think, I think I was living there for maybe nine months at the time, lived here for, for just a handful of months and wanted to expand my community. Seems like some of you want to as well. If you don't mind, I know this is probably a little untraditional, but would you go around the table and would you share one thing you're excited about? One superpower that you have, and maybe one really quick need that you have right now in case somebody in the group can fulfill it. And Jamie, again, like, this was awkward for me. Imagine sitting around a table with new guys that you wanted to meet. Some of them were a real stretch to invite them there. I mean, like, hey, I'm going to facilitate this thing and I'm going to make you stand up and say these three things. This was not comfortable. <laughs> but dude, it was a hit. Yeah. It was a hit. So I did it again. And I did it again. And I did it again and again and again. And now people were asking to be invited to this thing. And I will tell you very humbly, that by the time we left LA, we were there for about nine years in Santa Monica. There wasn't a restaurant I couldn't get in without waiting. There wasn't a person I couldn't get a hold of. 
Like my network is second to none because I invested in creating what I wish existed. On top of going to other people's masterminds, on top of going to the other events, on top of trying to get on stages. But the best thing I did was creating that table, so to speak, literally and, and metaphorically, for people to, to gather around and have good conversations. And nobody else was doing it. And you know what it cost me? Maybe two grand each time. Now, listen, I want to be very sensitive. I know that everybody has different financial situations right now. But take that with a grain of salt. There's a lot worse places you can invest two grand. When you invest two grand into a dinner and people show up and you're the one facilitating it and you're the one running it and you're the one that got everybody there and, and people meet somebody new and that, that new person is able to, to solve something small for them. Guess who everybody looks at as, hey, I need that guy in my life. They look to you. It's one of the, the biggest hacks. It's one of the fastest ways to put yourself right in the center of the community that, that you want to be. But it takes courage. It takes a little bit of investment. It takes a little bit of swallowing your ego. And it takes a little bit of fear of saying, oh, my God, what if nobody comes? Never understood the value of being a connector until two years ago. You, you know, like truly the value, both both the intrinsic value that you get from being, like you said, that person, but also the external value, right? That there's value, there's physical monetary value in being a connector. Um, I never full, I just thought it was something, you know, something you do, you know, eh, introduce you or bring you together or whatever. I'll buy dinner, you know, but to your point, being intentional with it and loving it and, and getting true uh, fulfillment and joy out of what you did. I brought you together and these two people did this and these two people did that together and they were able to help one another and you're at the center of that. I mean, it's just when you can take that fulfillment and as you have at scale, combine that with, you know, monetary gain, you know, because of, of how fulfilling it is. I mean, that's just, that's just an incredible life. So, you know, Jamie, I've got, I've got two thoughts on that. The first one is that's what a podcast is when you're a podcast host. Yeah. You've probably noticed that when you have a stranger on your show, by the end of that hour or 90 minutes or whatever it is, you guys are like homies. Like, wait a second. How do we have so much chemistry? How uh, can you come up to my lake house? Can you do this? Can you do? I have never found a way to connect with people faster and deeper than interviewing them on a podcast as the host. Is there's just a weird magical thing that happens, I think, because you go deep right away and there's no distractions around you. You're both really laser focused in. Imagine if you did that in a physical setting. You, you went into a room, you sat across the table from each other, and there was no distractions, and you went deep right away for 90 minutes staring at each other. That's what a podcast is when you're a podcast host. No wonder you have these breakthroughs. Yeah. Now, that's the first thought. And the second thought that I had around it, where, you know, being the connector, is it's a habit you have to build like anything else. I wake up each day, and I literally intentionally have my eyes peeled Hey, I know these friends over here need X, Y, and Z. Who could I connect them to that might be able to? And because I'm always looking for that, because I'm always conscious of that, I find it. Oh, this person's doing a book launch. This guy runs book launches. I got to connect them. Boom. Connection made. Re reciprocity now in my favor. Oh, this person needs their funnel tweak. That's not working. This guy over here is the best Facebook ads guy in the world. I got to connect them. Boom. Connection made. Reciprocity now in my favor. People cruise through life. I get it. You're busy. You got a lot going on. You can hardly see straight many days. You have your own dreams that you're worried about. 
But if you were to change some of that energy and point it towards solving other people's problems, woo, you will want for nothing, I promise you. Man, I, you're speaking into my soul. Uh, on the point of connection, it's funny. You and I, in doing my research, right, share the corporate exec thing. We've talked about that. Um, you know, we share the relational piece, I feel, meaning like very intentional, like you said, grounded in values. And my wife and I have, have rituals and things that allow us to grow together, even as we grow individually uh, in different ways or whatever the case may be. But one thing I want to resolve that we might have a point of, oh, Landmark's another one. I shouldn't, I, I forgot that. Your Grand Prix, what year was it when you were just starting out? Do you remember? Oh, I had Grand Ams. Um, so I had two Grand Ams and then a Grand Prix. Then a Grand Prix, right. The Grand Ams were... 1989 and a 1990 and i think the grand prix was probably a 95 what about you 89 so we have we had a similar year vehicle look at that it's like what's the stepbrothers thing did, did we just become best friends i know i know i know remember the the, the four tailpipes across the back and the little checkered <laughs> taillights man yeah, that was just a car back the in the wheels day. at the ponderosa i worked at I just... yes oh <laughs> ponderosa okay now you're bringing back some midwest memories that's awesome yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, Frello. What is it? What's the app? Give me some, uh, you know, give me some information here. Frello is a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace for small personal loans. We're trying to help people who have an urgent need, like, hey, my furnace went out, or I need new tires on the car, or brakes, or I've got moving expenses I can't cover. Right, so people who have an urgent need that they didn't plan for, we want to give them a way to take care of that urgent need in the fastest way possible by matchmaking them with somebody who says, hey, I'm willing to help you out with that for a small, quick return on my money. Mm -hmm. And to really give you the reason why this is important to me, I, I kind of got to share the, the story as to where this came from. So when you have a podcast that is centered around money and generosity, it naturally invites a lot of people to slide into your DMs and share their hardships and ask for money. And I mean... Jamie, I probably get a hundred of these a month. I'm not kidding. So I had to make a personal policy. I don't know what's real, what's fake. I'm not going to give in the DMs. I'm going to give in ways that are verifiable, that I can see, feel, and touch. Despite having this personal policy, about three years ago, I got a DM and I've got no other way to explain it other than like a feeling from God, do what you want with that, poke holes in that, have fun with that. But I don't know how else to explain it. There's like a physical feeling from God through my head into my heart that said, hey, open this DM and answer it. So I did, just following a feeling. And it was a landscaper. He said, Chris, I listened to the show, grateful for all that you put out there. I am really embarrassed to send you this, but I'm two payments behind in my landscape truck. And if I don't come up with $680 really quick, like in the next few days, they're going to repossess my truck. And if they repossess my truck, the two guys that work for me are going to lose their jobs. Is there any way that you would lend me $680? And following the feeling, I said, hey, listen, stranger, I won't lend you the $680. I will give you the $680. And all I ask is that you put yourself in position to do this for somebody else someday down the road. I believe in you. That's it. So I paypal'd him the 680 bucks it could have been a scam it could have been fake i didn't know i didn't care i was just following a feeling thought i'd never hear from him again about two months later 
guy DMs me again. I think, oh boy, here we go. Open up a can of worms. 2000 now. Yeah, yeah 2000 now. Here's my new hardship. <laughs> he DMs me unsolicited and he says, hey, I want to let you know what you did for me that day. I took the 680 bucks, got current on the truck. Guys kept their jobs. But that's the least of it. Something happened when you said, hey, man, all I ask is that you put yourself in position to do this for somebody else one day, and I believe in you. He goes, something shifted in me, and I've gone absolutely crazy getting as many new landscape accounts as I possibly can to the point where I'm buying another truck and hiring two more guys. Wow. And I just wanted to say thank you for, for being there in that moment of my life. And Jamie, I thought, $680? That's it? Was the difference between this guy going out of business and two guys losing their job or him catching fire and creating two more jobs in the economy? 680 bucks. And he had nowhere to turn. So he went to a stranger on Instagram whose podcast that he listens to. Man, people shouldn't be in that situation. People shouldn't be in that situation. There's got to be a better place to turn. And that became the, the seed that was planted in me where I was like obsessed with how do I solve this? Now, for context, this is the part that I think is so funny. I hate tech. I'm not good at tech. If something, if my TV doesn't work, I call my brother to come fix it. I never in my entire life said, hey, I want to build an app. I've never been that guy. Yeah, yeah. So the mission meant so much to me that I knew I had to find somebody else to, to split this mission with. And I had a friend who ironically, I met in a mastermind years ago. His name is Matt. Matt had built and just sold his tech company for way over nine figures. Mm. No dilution, kept the whole thing himself. And when he sold it, he sold it to a much larger competitor. And the competitor said, hey man, I want your customers, I want your IP, I want your tech, but I don't want your team. So Matt being the good guy that he is, he said, hey team, thanks for getting us across the finish line. They're not gonna continue your employment, but as a thank you, I am going to pay all of your salaries for the next two years, whether you want to stay at home and relax, hey, you've earned it. Whether you want to get a job and double dip, hey, you've earned it. Or who knows, maybe someday a project will finance because we know that we're good at working together. Yeah. Right about that time, here I come. Matt, 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 here's the idea. You got to help me. So I explained it to him and he loves the idea. But he says, hey, if my team is going to become your team, if we're going to do this together, it has to be their choice. You got to pitch them. And I'm not going to do this unless they are 100% in. So I pitched his team the idea. And they loved the altruistic side of it. Now, remember, this is a tech team that is fully in, in, in stock. We have everything. A CTO, engineers, designers, uh, HR, uh, ninja, CFO. I mean, we have everything. Because that's what they just were a minute ago when they sold that company. Right. They loved the altruistic side of it. And so... From that moment on, about 15 months ago, we've been off to the races, building this two-sided marketplace where we're pairing people that have an urgent financial need and those that have the financial means to solve that need real quick, but then make a quick return on it. And what we are building is one of the most disruptive things in fintech. I am telling you, this is the neighbor lending 500 bucks to his other neighbor, knowing he's going to get it back and, and maybe a little favor on top. And the, the redundancies that we put into place, the protections for the lenders, you name it. This thing is going to change the world. It's going to take the power back and give it to the people from, from the institutions that have it right now.
you're Jim Carrey in Yes Man. What's that? No. Oh yeah, he's it's a older movie now, probably 15 years, 10 years old, but great movie. He he is a down on his luck banker um, who just says no to everything, his friends, life. He goes through a, a bad breakup, divorce, whatever, and he just doesn't want to do anything. He lies to his friends about what he's doing because they don't want to hang out with them. Then he goes to this conference. It's over the top, like a personal development conference where you have to say yes to everything. So he literally does like those old spam emails that you would get. Like, would you like a wife from India? Well, yes, I would. He was saying, yes, <laughs> but as a loan officer, he uh, started making um, like $200 loans, $400 loans, $600 loans to people who needed it for like a kid's birthday that weekend or whatever with these little returns. And his boss is freaking out. Oh my God, what are you doing? He gets called upstairs and the bank is like, your micro loan program is the most successful thing we've seen. We're making money hand over fist, da, 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 because he said yes, right? So it was this idea that when you say yes, great things come into your life. But the micro loan, that's essentially what you're creating. You're Jim Dude, Carrey. I have, okay, I'm going to go watch that. This, yes, this you are. Now. I, can't, I literally cannot wait to go watch that thing. I literally <laughs> cannot wait to go watch that. Listen, there's, you know, we're really aiming for the gig economy workers. Yeah. You know, the Uber drivers, the DoorDash drivers. All of those individuals that are hardworking, they're getting daily pay. If their kid gets sick or their car breaks down, they can't work for a few days. All of a sudden, they need a, a $300, a $500, a, a $900 solution just to, to get back in the game. We're keeping them out of payday loan stores, which are predatory as hell. Oh, shit. And yeah. we are giving them a fast, shame-free, anonymous solution to get what they need and get right back in the game again. When is and it launched? Or has it, does it has it launched or is it is it due to launch? No. So here's exactly where we are in the timeline. For the past year, we have been doing discovery, taking care of legal. Sure. We built a fully functional beta demo, um, and we did a pre-seed round where Matt and I just funded it ourselves. Nice. Now we are having Authentic, who just got done building Starbucks new push notifications and Capital One's new app. We're having them build out the full scalable app, the one that can handle the moving of the money, the one that can handle, you know, the million users. They're building that out for us right now to the point where we'll have a large scale beta in November, five to 10,000 people. The results of that beta will then tell us, can we do nationwide launch either at the end of first quarter 2024 or at the beginning of second quarter 2024? That's our timeline that we're on right now. We're doing a strategic fundraise. We're looking for anybody that has experience in building tech, experience in building apps, experience in launching this kind of thing, or has an audience that has our borrowers or our lenders in it. And we've got some really cool celebrity investors that I'm not allowed to share yet. But when I say we are putting together some of the, the best strategic investors ever, where it's going to cut down on our our user acquisition costs significantly. Man, I am proud of how this roster is shaping up. I love it, man. I love it. We're right up against that. I want to honor your time. What's the best place for people to find you, look for you? Where do you want to direct folks? You know, um, Instagram, Chris W. Harder. That's always one of the best places to reach out, ask a question, always happy to answer it. Uh, if you want to check out the app, there's not much on the website yet, but it's Frello app, F-R-E-L-L-O. Frello app. Frello is a friendlier loan, by the way. Frelloapp.com. And uh, heck, every morning that I wake up, I send out a text message that is a positive money mindset or a positive business perspective 
so that your feet can hit the ground looking through abundant set of lenses before the rest of the world's stuff falls on you. If you want to throw yourself on that text list, all you got to do is text me the word daily to 310-421-0416. We'll drop that in the notes as well. Man, listen, kudos to Mike Aiello. This was absolutely amazing. And your podcast, yours and Lori's. I mean, you're talking guests like Ed Milet, Tony Robbins. I mean, you have the biggest names on that show, just for context for people listening right now. So, man, truly an honor. Truly. I really appreciate you being on here today and taking the time. Jamie, I got to say the exact same thing about you. First of all, props to Mike. Is he not one of the greatest human beings on the planet? Thousand percent. God, I love that man. I love that. I'm so glad that he connected us. Um, like we were joking before, I feel so bonded now. We can't wait to see, you know, what else we get to do in the future. Better hear about Yes Man after you watch it, but go ahead. I'm yes, sorry. yes. And I just want to tell you, what a great show. What a great host. And it's an absolute honor to be on here. Yeah, it means a lot. That means a ton. I appreciate that. Received. I appreciate that so much. So we'll see you then. I'll, uh, yeah, can't wait to get this one out.